Hello and welcome to the latest episode of When Sky Invented Football, the podcast plotting a more fan-friendly future for football. My name's Adrian Goldberg, founder of Britain's first national football fanzine, Off the Ball, back in the 1980s, with me football writer John Nicholson, author of Can We Have Our Football Back? How are you doing, John? You all right? I'm very good, thanks. I'm throbbing with football. <laughs> Are you? Well, what we're going to talk about this week is the sound of the crowd and the importance of crowds to football. I thought you wouldn't be throbbing. I thought you might be a bit limp, actually, because there's no football to watch live and you don't like the idea of it just on telly. No, I don't. That is true. The reason for my throbbing is entirely non-football related. <laughs> Are we sure? Are we sure we want to go there, John? No, I don't think we do really. But yeah, you know. <laughs> gentlemen of a certain age getting rather excited. Um, uh, with with us today, uh, another John, John Berry. Now, John is the author of not one but two excellent football books this year. Hugging Strangers, The Frequent Lows and Occasional Highs of Football Fandom, which came out in July. It's a story about his life and times as a football fan following Birmingham City. It's a great read, but it's got a fantastic front cover, John, that will just be so evocative for any football fan who's gone leaping around when their team has scored. There's a guy with his back to the camera and there's people jumping all over him, rubbing his head, people I'm sure he's never known or met before. It's the essence, <laughs> isn't it, of, of watching football and following your team. I was so delighted when the picture editor at the publishers found it because it is exactly as you say, it completely captures that moment, doesn't it? And uh, your book is about following Birmingham City. That book is about following Birmingham City. A challenge for the bookshops, I suppose, whether to to file it under comedy or tragedy. Well, quite so. I, I was I was waiting for you to be less kind to me than you have been so far, <laughs> considering our regional rivalry. But I'll take that one absolutely on the chin. But yes, you're absolutely right. One of the things that I've been so pleased about, though, is that when I wrote it, I thought... Yeah, I can see that Birmingham fans are going to like this. But at the end of the book, I put my contact details so that people could have their say about it. And the number of responses I've had from people supporting all sorts of clubs, although it has to be said, not many of the glamorous ones who have just said, more or less said, mate, you've absolutely nailed this. This is exactly what it's like for the people like us who go week in and week out to be constantly disappointed. And you've got another book out as well, because obviously one book in four months isn't enough. Uh, Project Project Restart, (laughs) which looks at nine different clubs from the Prem to the Parks and how they came out of lockdown. And we'll talk about that a bit later. But John Nicholson, I'm just thinking, listening to John there, you know, the the joys and the sorrows, to quote from Birmingham City's song, Keep Right On, are following, if you like, an unfashionable club. Actually, for me, as a fellow follower of another unfashionable club. It's kind of... Oh, come now, you're elite, Adrian. You're elite. <laughs> John's a Borough fan. He's definitely unfashionable. But it's kind of... For me, that's what football is about. And, of course, I want my yeah. team to win trophies. I want them to be successful. But football without the lows... And, and for me, a low yeah. is not failing to qualify for the Champions League. Sorry, Man United fans. I just think, I don't, I don't actually think I'd be that interested in it. I could be wrong. No, I, I feel exactly the same. I think that all experiences need the opposite experience in order to have definition. 
and depth. And um, when I read um, fans of top five, top six clubs in the Premier League, they're, they're, they seem to be on the verge of a nervous breakdown if they lose four games in a season. And I thought, I've lost four games in a month, never mind in a season, you know. Yes. And I just feel as though that the whole experience of football is the important thing, is the whole thing, not just, well, I only want to go, I only want to support a team that wins, you know, which is definitely definitely more and more the case. And even if I, when I was a kid, there would be kids that would want to support Liverpool because Liverpool won a lot. Well, that doesn't seem to be the point of football to me. The point of it is to have an affinity for whatever reason it is, usually geographic, with with your local club, and you go through the highs and lows. And uh, with supporting Borough, um, the lows massively outweigh the highs, but the highs are better highs than anyone else who has a lot of highs ever has, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think it does. And uh, John Berry, I was interested in your personal story as well. You come from South Birmingham, as I do. And like me, you were a football orphan. And there's a lot of us about, because people talk about football being in the blood and being taken by your dad or your mum or your granddad and all that sort of stuff. But I didn't have anybody like that in my family. My dad was a a German-Jewish refugee. He didn't follow football, although... You know, credit to him, he did take me when I pestered him, but it wasn't his love, it wasn't his passion. And you had, I think, a godfather who was an Albion fan. It was my uncle, in fact. Your uncle, he took you on and you decided it wasn't for you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was hilarious, really, because when I look back on it, you know, at a distance of a quarter of a century, and this is how I characterise it in the book, when I was about seven or eight, for reasons I can never quite fathom, I was in the playground at school and someone said, you know, the inevitable question, what are you, Blues or Villa? I went, I'm Blues. And that was it. You know, there's a kind of little bit of backstory there. And my uncle, my my mother was recently widowed. And my uncle Lou, clearly seeing disaster uh, on the horizon, said, I better save this boy. And he took me to the Albion on Boxing Day on 1963 which you probably know, I mean, you you will know, but lots of, again, uh, died in the wall football fans know, was the day that football went mad. There was an 8-2, there was a 10-1, and the Albion played Tottenham. And Tottenham were glamour personified. And it was for all, under lights, dark, cold, Jimmy Reeves, Jimmy Greaves scoring two goals. And my uncle Lou must have thought, well, job done. He's never going to get back down the blues now. <laughs> and I went straight home and I said to my mum, I absolutely love that. I'm going to go to the blues next week. <laughs> <laughs> and blues, we ought to stress for people who are listening to this, uh, but he's, in, given as we both come from the, the West Midlands, uh, John, blues relates to Birmingham City. Chelsea these days tend to be referred to as the blues. Where did that come from? Oh, well, I know, the pensioners, surely. <laughs> <laughs> Part of the horrible rebranding of football. Chelsea, in my mind, I wasn't, I'm not old enough to remember 1963, John. I wasn't watching football then. You say that. I, I, I mean <laughs> that. But I'm certainly watching football in the early 70s. And you still cling to those old nicknames. Reading are never the Royals. They're the Biscuit Men. <laughs> of course they are. And Palace of the Glaciers as well. <laughs> I was going to say bizarrely, but of course that relates to, to Crystal Palace, I presume. That's right. Yeah. Birmingham were one of my favourite sides in the uh, 70s because I used to love Trevor Francis and Bob Hatton. And they played in that fantastic strip with the blue either side of a massive white uh, white band. They should never have got rid of that. That was a brilliant strip. 
it, it is by far the most loved strip. Is it? Yeah. Oh, that's great. And I think, you know, of, of the retro kits that people wear at games, I think that outstrips any other retro type kit, at least two or three to one. You had some great players back then. Bob Latchford was playing a few before he went to Everton, didn't he? He was fantastic. And they all looked so wonderful from a distance now. You know, all very... He- they all look like Californian rock stars. They do. You know, goopy, <laughs> goopy yeah. moustaches, long hair. They all look like they're in the Eagles, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I don't know. Gordon Taylor was always a bit too short and fat to be he the Eagles, quite honestly. <laughs> 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 I think it looked like he might have been in the words or small like He had a surprising sp- turn of speed, Gordon Taylor, though, which is... There was a moment of silence there. I'll say it yeah. again. He did have a surprising turn of speed. Uh, he has now when it comes to getting money, yeah, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can remember that Birmingham City team, certainly. And, you know, they were a very good side. Finished, I think, 10th in the top division, didn't they, under Freddie Goodwin? And they, 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 were, they were a very, very decent uh, footballing team. And so, John, you kind of then decided to go your own way and follow Birmingham City and, and sort of just get the bus up on your own. I've got to say, something I used to do as a kid growing up in the West Midlands, I used to go and watch football matches. I used to, you know, Albion was my team and... That came about because I went with a mate from school. But I used to get the bus or the train to go and watch all of the local West Midlands teams because I just love football and, and wanted to see see as much of it as I possibly could. One of the things I write about in the book is that we had a little spot on the cop at the Blues where every Saturday, if we weren't playing sport for the school, which a lot of us, of course, inevitably did, but we would all go there and by all... I mean, the Blues fans, the Villa fans, not the Albion, because the Albion, as you you will know, Adrian, would almost certainly have been at home on the same day as the Blues. Yeah, yeah, that was written in the law, that was. That's right, that's that's the 11th commandment. But Blues fans would be going there, a couple of Warsaw fans. And here's a lovely story. On the last day of the COP, way back in the the 1990s, pre-internet days before you could, you know, locate people around the globe, we all went back, unprearranged, to the same spot that we'd been going when we were kids from school, exactly as you say. Plus, of course, we'd do the same. We'd go to the villa all the time, stand on the halt end, keep quiet, hope the villa would get beat. Dozens of us did that. Funny that. I wonder if that happens today. I have a, I can't prove this, but I have a notion that Football fans who go to games are far more tribal now uh, and far more one-eyed than we used to be. I used to go and see Darlow at Darlington and I used to go and see uh, Hartlepool as well. Not as frequently as going to the Borough, but I go to them. But you'd also go and see um, amateur sides as well. I would go and watch Stockton Town and those sorts of of clubs. And and I just wonder if that's commonplace now. I think everybody... I, I feel as though there is little kind of flexibility in your loyalty to clubs and it's like all or nothing you're in totally and you can't dilute it with going to any other grounds don't know if that's the case i do think it is it is partly about cost that john i mean my daughters i don't honestly know so my eldest daughter is 16 she comes to the match with me but really only for the experience and that's not massively into football my middle daughter kind of soaks it up a little bit more would they go to a game on their own i don't know but could they afford 
to go to a game on their own. I mean, for me, it used to be a thing. And I always say this isn't a, a nostalgia podcast, but I think this week it's going to have to be. I talk about one week I would buy a record, buy a single. It would be like 25p. That would be my pocket money. The other week, that would be my admission money in. And live football now is so expensive and for young people to go on their own, I, th- I think he's actually quite prohibitive. So even even following your own team, never mind following you know a team just because you fancy it, I think is is really quite difficult. Yeah, I, I think I'd agree with that, uh, and I, I will try and avoid the nostalgia. But there is a so- kind of sociological aspect about it. For me, it comes down to the whole thing about what, as a young man, as a boy, you did. You played two games. You played cricket and football although I had to play rugby at school, which I didn't much like, but was still, you know, had to play it. Now, those choices of what you do for your activity, for your leisure, and look, I'm not going back to, you know, we ought to be kicking case balls around under the street lamps, but the the choice was narrower. And also, of course, you didn't see any football on the television. You saw the cup final and maybe the odd international or whatever, but still seeing football played by grown men who were professionals, what for me was a thrill and one that you could only get by actually going to see it. What I get out of the book, John, is the sense that, as I mentioned earlier, a gentleman of a certain age, you haven't lost that enthusiasm, your passion. One of my best mates from school who'd been following the Albion with me and a, a small group of mates who go for, for kind of 30-odd years. In the Tony Pulis era, he lost his love for it. And he lost his love for the Albion, not just for football, but particularly for the Albion. And so he still has an interest in football, does fantasy football and that, just driven away by the passionless, soulless drudgery of existing in the top division merely to survive in order to ensure that the chairman's investment was protected. And I kind of get that. But for me, there is still nothing quite as exciting as Saturday afternoon, three o'clock, dark winter's afternoon, and just walking up the steps, seeing those bright lights on the green pitch laid out in front of you. The thought of that, especially now at a time when we can't do it, just got goosebumps thinking about it. One of the things I've started doing with a group of mates in the last few weeks although no, that, that particular rug has been pulled from under our feet. We've started doing Isthmian League, level seven, level eight, so that we can go to a game, go and have a pint in the ground, watch a game of football, on, as you say, on green grass. The last couple of weeks, the lights have gone on at the end. And it, it is like a, a terrible addiction. And I don't want any of your listeners to think there's nothing else going on in my life. But this that particular addiction kind of does have to be fed, going to be part of football. John Nicholson, do you think then that given that we can't go to matches at the moment and there are good reasons for that, that do you seriously think that football should be suspended as well? Well, yes. I mean, I've, I thought this back in March when, it, um, when the initial lockdown happened. Um, before I looked into it a little bit more in, in more depth, I thought... Well, they'll just shut it down. They just won't play, and uh, and we'll wait until fans come can come back in, and that'll be it. And then I, it, you know, I mean, I've, I'm writing an update to the book at the moment called um, "Extra Time and Penalties," 
uh, about this period, and you know it 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 should have that should have been the case because you could have furloughed all of the playing staff of lower league clubs, and um, and then the top flight clubs, you know, the players are already rich enough to survive anyway without any money, and uh, because the furlough money wouldn't mean anything to them, and uh, and uh, but of course that couldn't happen because of the way the way clubs are geared financially, they need the TV money to keep everybody in the luxury they've become used to. So it had to come back, and uh, it comes back in this bloodless, soulless form, um, which is robbed of the very point of it even existing in the first place, which is as an entertainment, as part of the entertainment business, but without an audience. It's weird. It's a really weird situation. I think I've called it an existential crisis and i think that's really what it is because i don't really know who it's being played for anymore uh, if there isn't anybody watching it especially for the ones that aren't being watched on tv who is it being played for it's not on tv and uh it's nobody in the ground why is it happening <laughs> you know what what's it it's like having a band and touring and uh nobody comes to see you and uh the venue's all locked up i mean what it's just ridiculous i don't see the point in any of it really there are two things, aren't there, I would say to that, John. One is that games in the Premier League, obviously they don't have live attendances. I don't think anybody, even the people at the very top of Sky or BT, really want that to continue for a long time. But it does mean that in the intervening period, on days when, frankly, not very much is happening, because nothing much happens when we're in lockdown, at least there's something to look forward to. It's, you know, it's not quite Dame Vera Lynn entertaining the troops, but, but it is something. And, I, you know, I certainly look forward to it. I'm going to be watching West Bromwich Albion in the final game that I can watch in a pub before lockdown with a few people. They've got an outside bit, so it's it's not breaking the law. It's a kind of a covered garden with heaters. So, you know, right side of the law with it. And when that ends, you know, I, I enjoyed the sociability of that. It's not the same as going to the game, but I enjoy the sociability of it. And even in the EFL, all the games are available, as I understand it, through iFollow. So there will be some audience for that. I kind of just think in tough times, in dark times, yes, it's not perfect. Yes, it's not brilliant, but it is better than nothing. I think I kind of subscribe to that as well. I have to say at the top level, I mean, take yesterday afternoon, I couldn't have told, I mean, I know the Villa were playing at midday, but I couldn't have told you who was playing yesterday afternoon. And normally one of the things I quite like when the clocks go back is to sort of sit down Sunday tea time and think, oh, smashing. I'll watch a game, but really and truly to watch a game being played in a vacuum like that, it's a very poor second best. But to support what you were saying, Adrian, it is a second best. It is a something just about. But my goodness, it's thin fare and I am getting pretty bored with it. Yeah, and don't forget, like you know, we're only six games into a new season. How we, how how are people going to feel about it come next May and June? You know. Yeah. But I mean, I may be alone. This I admit that to me, I admit I understand that there is the common view is well, it's better than nothing. I do understand that, and I do appreciate that. But to me, it just feels like uh, it feels like sex without an erection. 
That's what it feels like. <laughs> I've never experienced that, John. But... Yeah. Believe me, it'll happen. It'll happen. Making a podcast, making a turn I wasn't expecting, but there we go. Yeah. There you go. I'll, I'll let you dwell on that. I won't elaborate further. <laughs> and uh, what does annoy me, I have to say, is the move towards pay per view. I mean, it's a it's a kind of cliched response, but it's true, isn't it? Like a few people, I kind of. I suppose, went back on my principles. And I actually did take out a subscription through Now TV for Sky on the basis that I wasn't going to be paying for my season ticket this season. Sky was offered to me at £25 a month. And at the start of the season, all the matches were available on TV. So I thought, well, as a trade-off for not going to see the matches live, I'll be able to see at least half the Albion games on Sky and find a way to see the others one way or another. But then... Having put the games behind a paywall, there's now another paywall, which is the fourteen ninety five pay per view, and I've got to say that is a stretch too far for me. Not necessarily because of the principle, although I don't like the principle. I think they've got a, a deaf ear to what's going on out there in society at large. But the cost fourteen ninety five, and I know it's cheaper than going to a game, but it really is not going to a game, isn't it? I think the deafness of that ear that you've alluded to there is pretty widespread, isn't it? And one of the few things that's given me some real joy in football in the last few weeks has been hearing about those fans of various clubs who've said, stuff your 14.95, that money's going to a food bank, mate. And I think what that does illustrate is the absolute tone deafness of the of those at the very top of the game and part of the broadcasting community who simply don't get that football fans are multidimensional. You know, we're not that bloody daft. I think that's a really great point, John. You know, I think it points to the idea that the people who make these decisions and come up with these ideas are not living the lives that regular people who go to football are leading. You know, they because there's absolutely, I mean, just from a purely business point of view, that was terrible, PR. I mean, and it was so predictable as well that it showed how divorced they are from the common thinking. And um, I thought it was fascinating that that even happened. I tried to get the viewing figures for them, those games that were shown uh, for fourteen ninety five. Surprisingly, nobody was prepared to give them to me. Now, I think had they been interstellar figures, uh, which had... Uh, you know, outperformed everybody's expectations. I think they would have been made available to me when I inquired. But surprisingly, they're not available. I wonder why that could be. There is a story, uh, I don't know how true this is, that the West Bromwich Albion Burnley game had fewer than a 1,000 subscribers. Given the relative fan bases of the teams, you know, who between them, let's say, uh, would attract 45,000 people on a good day, I'd be surprised if only a 1,000 or less than a 1,000 paid the 14.95. But I don't know. You've got two fan bases drawn from areas that are not particularly affluent. And there is that bit that sticks in the throat about about paying it as well. Anyway, let's talk about more positive things because, uh, John, in Hugging Strangers, you talk about the joy of travelling uphill and down Dale to follow your team, the, the last-minute escapes from relegation, the last gasp winners that get your promotion and so on. So I'm going to put you on the spot and talk to me about the the best three crowd experiences 
that you have been part of, possibly as a Birmingham City fan. Maybe it's involved other teams. But what what are the games that just spring to mind then when you think of being in a crowd and exulting with other supporters? The, the, the greatest moment, and you'll just have to indulge me for a moment, is that almost unbelievably in my lifetime, we won a real cup at Wembley against proper opponents. So when we won the League Cup in 2011, that was almost beyond belief that we could be standing there at Wembley. And in a few moments, someone in a Birmingham City shirt was going to be going up those steps and collecting a real live proper trophy. So so that's certainly way up there as far as I'm concerned. The other one, and again, it is relatively recent if you want in three, and I'm grabbing around as I'm thinking, but we'll get there. The other one is the one that I start the book with, and that sounds like a terrible plug, but it was one of the things that actually prompted me into into writing it. And it was at Ashton Gate at Bristol uh, about three years ago, and there we were again, last minute, last game of the season. And just a quick aside here, like a lot of Blues fans that I go with, when the fixtures come out in July, this is the God's honest truth, when the fixtures come out in July, we look for the last game of the season to say, where will we need to be to get the points to stay up? Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's proper football fun, <laughs> Anyway, I'm at Ashton Gate, and somehow, you know, we're not quite in the same group of people as I go with. And I'm stood next to a 17, year, 17 18-year-old kid. I'm in my 60s, mid-60s. And me and this kid, we're one goal up. We've got to hang on. We've got to win it. If they draw, we go down. We are literally clinging on to each other for dear life. I don't know him. He doesn't know me. There's half a century between <laughs> us. Well, when it finishes... And everyone piles in. Me and this kid are inseparable. You know, I mean, we can't get a fag paper between us. So I think that that is um, a memorable one. And yet, funnily enough, I will go for the third one right back to the end of that first season. So I went first, went in 63. The season finished in 64. I tell the story in the book of the last game of the season. We had to beat Sheffield United to stay up. Um, and we win, but we win in the following circumstances. Indulge me for 30 seconds. A corner comes over, right? Um, Trevor Smith used to play centre-half for Birmingham in those days, had a couple of days for England, goes up to head the ball, into the net go Trevor Smith, ball, their keeper, who doesn't get up again, so we play against 10 men. So we're 1-0 up against 10 men, a centre-forwarding goal for them. And again, I go home that day and I think, I like football. It's <laughs> Beautiful, beautiful. What about you, John? What's the one or two or maybe even three games that, that leap out for you as you know, I was there moments? Well, I am a great fan of the banality and the monotony of football. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I think John, the whole John, point about I, football is that John, you witness it. You know, it is, John, that is John I don't know why we don't change the name of the podcast to The Banality. <laughs> what was the, yeah. the banality? <laughs> The penalty and the monotony of football, yeah. 
well, it's, it's, it is that. That's, that's the title for my next I'm, I'm book. Gonna, no, I'm going to put out a tweet this week saying celebrating the banality and monotony <laughs> of football. <laughs> well, this is it, you know. I mean, when I've been inculcated into watching Middlesbrough in the early 70s, <laughs> um, it was, you know, it was you didn't go for the excitement. And um, you went to be present. And, uh, so yeah. the thing that started, first two games stand out for me. One is the first one I went to, which was Middlesbrough 1, Hull City 0. Uh, Hickton scored, as he always did, in a 1-0 win. And it wasn't because I don't remember it being uh, fantastic entertainment or exciting. What I remember is the feeling that it wasn't like any other part of my life. Uh, I was about, uh, I must have been um, about 10 and uh, it wasn't like anything else because there was uh, loads of, you know, there was, uh, I think there was only 9,000 there that day, but there was 9,000 people on the streets. Well, the streets weren't busy like that, you know? Everything was weird and different and hyper-real about it. And um, and I just remember, I mean, I've, I've written about this loads, and it's an anecdote I've told even on television, but I will tell it again. Uh, it was just, I was standing there um, looking at the pitch for the first time, and as, as you just saying, Adrian, about walking up the steps, and the pitch is so green. And Ayrson Park was an incredibly beautiful pitch, you know, good enough for World Cup in 66. And um, uh, and I looked at it, and it was incredibly green, and there was this young kid in front of me with his dad. And he said, Dad, how come the pitch is so green? And his dad said, because there's been so much shite on it over the years. <laughs> <laughs> and that stayed with me. The, 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 the humour of that, that was just very a teesidey sort of thing. But the humour of it, the situation, it just all that 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 to me that that's why I say it is the banality and the monotony of football, you know. And I won't have it sold to me as a kind of glossy product. Yeah, that yeah. doesn't interest me at all, you know. It's um, anyway. And so, but the second one is in contrast to that was the uh, Borough's win over Stowe Bucharest when we uh, we progressed to the uh, UEFA Cup final in two thousand and six, when we came back, we'd lost the the away leg one nil. In, in a tournament where in every knockout round we lost one of the games but still went through, which is typical Borough. That, that is an incredible stat in itself, actually, isn't it? That's amazing. It yeah. is. It's incredible. Oh, no, we, we perfected the art of losing but scoring an away goal and just going through on that. And um, uh, against Stour, we were uh, 1-0 down from the away leg and then we were 2-0 down at home. Um, Southgate got injured and he was carried off. We had to score four to win, and we scored. Macaroni scored a diving header in the last minute, and it was like nothing else I've ever experienced at Middlesbrough. And nothing. I mean, I can't. I've written reams and reams about it. I've just done a feature for a new book about it, and uh, it wasn't. It it was precisely the opposite of what I just said, in that it wasn't banal <laughs> and it wasn't monotonous. It was absolutely intense and thrilling. And I've also never experienced, I don't know if you two guys have ever experienced this, but I've never experienced a collective um, understanding that you, your side is going to score. You know, it's just suddenly we've got to, we've got the, the third goal and suddenly everyone knew it was on. I don't think anybody thought we wouldn't get the fourth and, and, and we won the tie 4-3 on aggregate. And I've never experienced that, the way everyone goes, well, well we're going to do it. And it got to the last minute, yeah, we're still going to do it. And then even Macaroni, who was terrible and hardly ever scored any goals, flying head, he was horizontal with the ground as he hit the ball. And it's just like everybody thought, well, yeah, of course he's done that. We knew we were going to do it. So, no, brilliant. That, those are my two favourite moments. Just thinking about crowds and, and the joy of being in a crowd. And it's a, 
a difference between terracing and seating? I think you're 100% right, Adrian. And of course, in the in the second division championship, call it what you will, it's really noticeable wherever you go. And it's probably the same at top level too. But the away supporters, they're the only people that make any noise. And there have been these, you know, a few clubs have made this effort, like Palace, even Reading have, of trying to get a noisy section. But the plain fact is that that sort of miserableness actually can have a deadening effect. And, of course, when you're away, the very fact that you've chosen to go away and that you're all in there together and you've had a couple of pints beforehand all generates that kind of energy. But I think, conversely, it's very easy to flatten that energy, A, when people drift in two minutes before the start, few negative comments, and it can really deflate the whole thing. And I think you see it loads of grounds until things get, you know, something kind of happens that lifts things. And I think that also leads to that real oddity, I think, of the last 20 years of who does the inspiration here? You know, is it the players or is it the crowd? You know, crowd saying, well, you've got to do something to get us going, you know, and players of of a generation surely used to think we were looking to you guys to help us with that. But I do think it's one of the real vagaries of the of the modern game. I think the fact that it's expensive to go has now altered the dynamic relationship between fans and team. I think I think we as fans more innately feel like they've got to do something for us because we've paid so much dough. So you think I paid me money, get fucking moving. Whereas it used to be because you hadn't paid you didn't really think about the economics of it so much. So you sort of took the responsibility more on yourself to get the team going. And I really think that the the money has really changed things in that regard. I, I spoke, um, Adrian, for, for the Project Restart, that's the one I've, I've just written, with a guy called Rob Wilson, who's a football finance ec- expert from Sheffield Hallam University. He talked all the time about people consuming football. And he said, if you look at how, you know, my son, and, he, you know, he, I think he was 17, 18, and his mates consume football and it's all snippets on phones and uh, league tables and stats and all the rest of it and you can get the goals the instance that they're, they're scored and what have you so the whole notion of them actually watching a whole game of football as an entity and I know this sounds crazy is something that is kind of disappearing from their view of the world it you know quick instant sharp um, exciting. So the notion that you have to wait 70 minutes for something remotely exciting to happen is not part of their expectation anymore. And that's all part of this consumerism. John, do you think that, in actual fact, the greater uh, development of football as a media thing, and so it's on television all the time, it's on the radio all the time, there's so much so much media about football it's a huge industry in a way that it never used to be it's almost it it, there's just too much and the greater volume somehow decreases the quality of the of the the culture and the entertainment i'm I'm trying to think of a way to express this better but do you know what i mean it's almost like you have steak at every dinner you don't want steak you start to want a salad do you know what i mean I think, John, we're back to your banality and monotony again. <laughs> what, what, these people, 
what these people need in their lives is a bit more banality and monotony. Yeah. Will you stop talking about my sex life? I don't know. <laughs> John, before we go, I just want to talk about your book as well, about Project Restart. It started as a hobby. Uh, come March, I sit down. I, I had just finished a book. I thought, right, um, what am I going to do now? And I did get quietly obsessed exactly with what the other John was talking about, about what's going to happen to football. And I just had literally a light bulb moment. I thought, what would it be like now to just to find a half a dozen clubs and follow them through what happens over the next few months? So, you know, my academic life, I have, I'm an academic uh, by, tr- not by trade, but by, by occupation. <laughs> so I, went, I, I just blasted loads of clubs, found all the contacts that I could. And I ended up with a range of clubs, Burnley in the Premier League, principally because they were the ones that responded to my requests, right the way down the Championship, Leagues 1 and Leagues 2, down to a couple of park sides, my local girls' side, and I just traced what happened to them between March and the beginning of uh, the middle of August when people started playing again. And they uh, will say this, well, you wouldn't expect me to say it. It's a really life-affirming story about what football does for people. Ties in, I think, with what I was saying before. The way in which connection with a football club at any level uh, enhances people's lives, enables them to contribute to their communities, enables them to forge networks with people. I can hear myself being a bit evangelical about this as I'm speaking now, but it really is genuinely life-affirming. The only difficulty with it was I didn't know how it was going to finish. I was hoping that I would finish the book by saying, and then I went to Turf Moor or I went to the Vetch or whatever. Of course, that didn't happen. But I still think it traces a great picture of what football means to society at large. Project Restart uh, by John Berry, available from Pitch Publishing, and his previous book, Hugging Strangers, also available from Pitch Publishing. Here we are in early November, so another couple of months uh, of the year to go. So now another book in the pipeline, John. Great to speak to you. Thank you, John Berry. And John Nicholson, author of Can We Have Our Football Back? Essential stocking filler for Christmas. I'll see you in a fortnight, John. Cheers, mate. Uh, uh, It's been a gas, boys. Thank you very much indeed. Cheers, mate. Top.